Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for coming out tonight. Standing room only. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I'll be back there with you in a minute. Um, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, I'm Professor Ian Stansel of the University of Louisville Creative Writing Program. And I'm happy to welcome you to the third and final Axton reading of the semester. Uh, before we get any further, I would like to ask you to make sure your cell phones are silenced or turned off. Um, you might think it's off, and then you realize it's not. You don't want to be that person because your ringtone is like Mbop or some other. Nobody gets, nobody gets that. I am. I am. I'm projecting. Um, so uh, after our reading, we will um, have time for a Q&A. So as the reading goes on, please make mental notes of all your um, queries. This reading is part of the Anne and William Axton reading series, which was established 20 years ago this year, 1999, through the generosity of the late William Axton, a former English professor here, and his wife, the late Anne Axton. The series brings highly distinguished writers from around the country and sometimes outside of the country, slightly outside of the country, um, to the University of Louisville to read from their work, share their knowledge and expertise with the university and with the larger Louisville community. Um, Axton visiting writers also lead a master class, and this will happen tomorrow morning from 10 till 2 in room 300 of the Bingham Humanities Building. And um, that is also um, open to the public. So if you are interested, you should come by room 300 of the Bingham Humanities Building. Um, normally, uh, if I'm up here, I'm giving a big, long spiel about the writer, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm actually going to invite up here our assistant director of creative writing um, and current graduate student, uh, Adam Yike, to introduce tonight's reader. Adam. Please, come on up here. Hi, everyone. Welcome. <clears throat> Welcome, Casey. Um, before we get into the reading, I want to introduce her and tell you a little bit about her work. Uh, Casey Plutt is the author of Little Fish, which we have in the back, and from Arsenal Pulp Press, the short story collection A Safe Girl to Love, also here, and is the co-editor of the anthology Meanwhile Elsewhere, Science and science fiction and fantasy from transgender writers, which we also have courtesy of Casey. Um, she wrote a column for transitioning for McSweeney's internet tendency, and her essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, McLean's, The Walrus, Plenitude, the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Free Press, and other publications. She's the winner of the Lambda Literary Award for Best Transgender Fiction and received an honor of distinction from the Writers' Trust of Canada's Dane Ogilvy Prize for LGBTQ Emerging Writers. <clears throat> she currently lives in Windsor, Ontario. Plett's novel follows the experiences and adventures of her protagonist, Wendy, a post-op transgender woman. Wendy, raised with and sometimes adjacent to the Manitoba Mennonite community, struggles to deal with family loss, personal tragedy, economic hardship, relationship woes, and a starting, startling revelation concerning her grandfather, a devout Mennonite farmer who died 20 years before the novel's opening. Littlefish reveals Wendy's life through the months of November and December in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Coinciding with the death of her Oma, Wendy's life seems to start spiraling out of control. I won't reveal plot developments, but uh, things become increasingly volatile for Wendy, and she can't resist investigating the possible ways in which her Opa's life may have mirrored her own, albeit in a very different time. And Wendy isn't sure she's ready for those answers even once she gets them. I recommend reading it. Um, as the back cover of the, of the novel states, Little Fish is, quote, alternatively warm-hearted and dark-spirited, desperate and mirthful, end quote, as Plett, quote, explores the winter of discontent in the life of one transgender woman, end quote. Casey Plett provides her readers with a deep and honest portrayal, both the dark, the light, the hated, and the loved of a transgender person in today's society. Wendy deals with the social stigma transgender people often suffer, both the overt and the subtle issues within the transgender community, as well as flashing back and revealing her own journey of transitioning. Readers see Wendy reminisce on the journey through coming out as a transgender woman and her path through the transition process, admitting that the, trans the transition did not resolve all of her internal issues the way she admits many trans women, in her experience at least, seem to think it will. Wendy's story isn't just a story, it's a reality for so many in one way or another, 
trans or cis, this novel has aspects and experiences we can all relate to and connect to on deep and personal levels. Um, enough about me from her, but I'd like to welcome Casey to read from any and all of her works. Casey Plett, everyone. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you, Ian. Um, thank you all of you for coming out here. Um, I know it's the end of the semester. That is really nice. Um, it has been my time here. It's been lovely so far. Um, let's see what do we what do we have here. Um, so this book that I co-edited, Meanwhile Elsewhere, Science Fiction Fantasy from Transgender Writers. Experience post-reality as a transgender human. This is a quick start guide. Meanwhile Elsewhere, Science Fiction and Fantasy from Transgender Writers is the number one post-reality generation device approved for home use. This manual will prepare you to travel from multiverse to multiverse. No experience is required. You may choose from 25 preset post-realities. You will rejoice in obstacles unquestionably bested and conflicts efficient resolved. Bring denouement to your drama with the foolproof augmentation device for our contemporary utopia. Notice, meanwhile, elsewhere is not legally approved for use in medical settings. Side effects may include headaches, graphomania, optimism, alcoholism, romance, wearing plaid, breast growth, and or removal, etc. The features portrayed in this book may or may not exist. Every manufacturer is not responsible for any personal catharsis. <laughs> so, um, uh, about the, uh, back of this book. So um, I, uh, this is not a book that I wrote. This is a book that I co-edited. There are 25 uh, really amazing stories in here by other writers. Um, and me, my co-editor, and the publisher um, had the idea for this. We were just like Skyping one night. Um, and we were, and, and, um, and we just kind of all like, one of us came up with the idea and we kind of just workshopped the text together. And it really felt like one of those like, thank you. Uh, it really felt like one of those, like, stupid things that you would say at a party, you know? So you're like, dude, like, what if this is on the back of the book? Like, wouldn't that be funny? You know, like, someone should totally put it on the back of a book. Um, and we, we were fortunate enough that we were, you know, in a, in a position to do that. But, um, and we did, and it ruled. Um, and I'm saying this to you because I always, you know, I always wish to emphasize um, those ideas that you have, like, with your, with your stupid friends at, like, a stupid party or by yourself laughing in your own room. You know, um, like sometimes those are real ideas and sometimes it's not ridiculous to make them reality. Um, and that the things that you see in books and movies or TV that you like, a lot of them actually started just like that. You know, I mean, the, um, the more I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to do this work, um, the, more, the, the more I sort of realize that the link between like, here's this kind of cool, funny idea I have and like, this is a thing I think that is cool that shows up in movies or books or whatever. Um, there's, there's no real process in the brain that is different about those things. Um, you know, even like, you know, things you see that are marketing stuff or whatever, like I worked as a book publicist for years. Um, and obviously the higher you go, the less risks you can take, but it is still people in essence being like, you know, like, dude, what if we did this? Like, wouldn't that rule? Like it's, it's, um, I, I don't, uh, I don't consider it that different. Now I'm going to read from a book that I did write. Um, so this novel, Little Fish, um, Adam's already told you about it. Um, I'm going to read from a couple sections. Um, let's see here. Um, this is the beginning, so I don't have to give you any preamble. The night before her Oma died, Wendy, was in a booth at the bar with Lila, Raina, and Sophie. It was 11 p.m., and they were all tipsy. And Sophie, she was saying, okay, age is completely different for trans people. Like, like the way that we talk about age is not how cis people talk about age. And Wendy said, okay, do you mean like that thing where our age is also how long we've been out or on hormones or whatever? And then Lila said, or do you mean that thing where we don't age as much because we die sooner? And Sophie said, both those things, yes. Okay, but look, there's more. There's so much more. Think of how much more hormones, like, preserve you. Like, look, we could all pass for, like, 21 if we wanted to. Like, fuck, I met this lady in New York, okay? She was 60, and she's been on hormones for decades. I swear she barely looks older than us. One sec, she said as she flagged down the waitress and they all ordered another. And Lila said, for the guys too, hey? Like, my boyfriend gets carded all the time, right? And Sophie said, exactly, okay. But, and yet, not just that. And then Raina said, are you giving us the latest from Twitter, Sophie? And Sophie said, fuck off, into her empty bottle. And Wendy, she couldn't tell if she laughed or was actually upset. 
Wendy said, you know, you are kind of our link to the trans girl internet. And Sophie made this exasperated sound. And she said, okay, look, this is, this, is, this is something that I have thought about for a while. Can I go on? Is that, is that okay with you? Apologies, said Reina. Please. Okay, she went on. I don't just mean the difference in how long trans people live. And I don't just mean in the sense that we have, like, two kinds of age or whatever. What I'm saying is the difference with transsexual age is what can be expected from you. You know, cis people have these benchmarks for a good life that go by go by age, you know? I mean, okay, okay, look, and I know, I know not, every, not every cis person has that life. Like, I get that. I get that. I guess what I'm trying to say is, what are the cis people in my life doing? What are they doing in your life? Versus what the trans people in your life are doing. Just on a macro level, ask yourself that. I wonder if cis people think about their past in the same way we do, Raina said suddenly. And then Wendy said, how do we think about our past? And Raina said, hmm. Well, said Sophie, if you want news from the trans girl internet, but then another waitress dropped a tray and some jokers in the bar cheered. And Wendy got up to pee anyway and sat sipping from a mickey of whiskey in the bathroom, calmly thinking. I'm going to read from another section. Um... As Adam said, a big conceit of the book is that Wendy, uh, she finds out evidence that her grandfather, who was a devout um, Mennonite farmer who had died when Wendy was a child, um, she finds out evidence that Opa might also have, uh, her Opa might also have been a trans woman like her. Um, and at first she's kind of like, okay, you know, whatever, that must have, that must have really sucked for him. Like, there's not really anything I can do about that. And I mean, it's not, you know, he's gone. So, um, you know, that's uh I guess that's what it was, and I've, you know, I've, I've, she, she kind of has bigger problems in her life. Um, but as her life, you know, kind of keeps sort of spiraling downward, she finds that she really sort of has to. She keeps finding links between her and her grandfather, and she has to sort of, um, she has to basically figure out um, how he got through his own life. Um, so in this chapter, Wendy is talking to her friend Sophie, who is also uh, from a Mennonite family and also a trans woman. Um, she was in the last scene. Wendy changed into pajama pants and threaded out of her bra, her boobs poking through the cam her camisole like flaccid balloons. Sophie shut the album, and a side of her hair flicked up in a poof, and she said, So why don't you want to call her? Wendy was like, Is there a point? Like, look, you know, okay, he was probably a girl. It probably sucked. I bet a million fucking Mennonites were trans. They probably, like, I don't know, all, like, just, like, lived stoically and added their triumphant burdens to bear for God. I don't know, maybe it wasn't even that bad in that light, you know? Like, who knows? She lifted her drink to her lips, and the ice clinked. Anna probably thinks he went to hell anyway. Like, what's the point? But Wendy, she said, what about the lost history of the Blumenort drag circuit? Sure, Wendy said, right, you're a real fucking scream. Sophie looked hurt at that. Whatever, she said. Look, you know what? Here's how I feel. I don't think tracking down dirt about my Opa is going to result in anyone feeling better about their lives. Or his, for that matter. Anna might, Sophie said. Oh, um, Anna is the old family friend who brings Wendy this information. Anna might, Sophie said. Not that you uh, necessarily need to care about her well-being, I suppose. And Wendy said, no, I don't. Sophie lay down next to Wendy, her skirt against Wendy's pajamas. Their heads touched, and Sophie curved her hand around Wendy's fingers. Do you need anything tomorrow night, Sophie said? No. Well, you want to come to this costume party at Frame? There's this guy I want you to meet. Oh, is there? Yeah, you like each other. Uh, I... I, I I mean, you, I mean, he's hot. He's smart. He's. I mean, you certainly don't have to. Like, I don't. I. I don't, I don't want to pressure you. And when you said you're not, is he weird about shit? I fucked him, said Sophie. And you have a vagina. The sun had set, and Sophie reached over and turned on a lamp. Her skirt making a rasp against Wendy's clothes. For a second, Wendy felt an overwhelming sense of peace, like the two of them were suddenly younger, much, much younger. Sophie tucked her head under Wendy's chin. Wendy stroked Sophie's hair. I thought a lot about old Mennonites being trans before. Sophie mumbled into Wendy's neck. Mmm. Especially when I think about my mom. What? <laughs> no, no, Sophie giggled. Not, not, not that way. I mean, at least I'm, I'm pretty sure my mom's not a guy. Explain, said Wendy. Well, she said, lapsed Mennonites like her, you know, they had to, they had to learn how to negotiate a larger world, you know? I mean, I, I don't mean the simpler stuff, like learning how you take a bus. I mean, I mean, socially. But maybe not even that. Okay, then Wendy said, okay, what? What, what, are, what are you talking about? Like, what not simpler stuff? I just mean, Sophie said, you can learn to look normal really quickly. Think about how fast, you know, people adopt certain words after a few months on the internet. You can go from being clueless to yelling at someone, like, almost right away. It's so fast, you know? It takes, takes longer to register a car. 
but you can't learn to talk about real wants, hates, desires as quickly. You can't figure out when to care when you're, that your actions are going to hurt someone and when to figure that maybe that person can go fuck themselves. You know, like their culture, our culture never built any of those skills. You know, they didn't need them in the first place. It must be hard escaping that. And then people like Europa, like my mom, they grew up somewhere where everybody was supposed to feel the same way about everything. Wendy was silent. And she said, my dad's not like that. That's because your dad's fucking bonkers, Sophie replied. Wendy blew a raspberry on her head. Okay, look, you said they didn't need those skills in the first place. Like, what do you mean by that? And Sophie said, I don't know. I just, I used to think, you know, in the old days, it must have been beyond suffocating. How no one said what they thought, you know? And I'm sure it was, but maybe in that world you didn't need to as much? I, I, I don't know. Look, if you were a parent and your kid got wasted or snuck home a record player or whatever, it was ordained how unhappy you were supposed to be and how they would be punished. So who needed to talk about how you felt? You know, like, look, you ever been called a faggot when you're with another trans woman? Yes, when he said instantly. Do you need to talk about it? No. What is your point? I know it's not the same thing, said Sophie. I just get what it's like when something needles you, but talking isn't necessary. Maybe living through it isn't the only hard part. Maybe... Maybe being in the world afterward is also the hard part, you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, where, where, where does my possibly trans-grandfather come into this? Just, just that I see what you're saying. I, I, I think I see what you're saying. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Sophie said hastily. You know, it was probably just another earthly burden to bear for him. And God would be proud of him for resisting. Done. I mean, he could have left for the city. He, I don't know. He could have found a way, maybe. But how hard would that have been? On top of how awful it was for any trans lady back then. It wasn't even a choice, Wendy said sharply. There was no option for him at any point in his life, and you know it. Sophie was silent, her skirt shifting on the bed. Well, anyway, Wendy added bitterly. I hope that's how he thought of it. Oh? He was always really sweet. He was so gentle and kind. If he didn't have a hope of being a girl, and he didn't, I hate to think he believed with all his soul that he was going to hell for it, too. Sophie rubbed her eyes. That'd be rough. Um, so here I would, um, I'm just going to take a quick second and talk about um, the wider um, sort of idea of trans writing, um, as it has kind of been a, a beat of mine or a project of mine um, for um, some years wanting to make work and encourage work uh, by trans writers about trans life. And some of my favorite writers who have done this um, are Imogen Binney, Elena Rose, Julia Serrano, Meredith Russo, who is here, hello. Um, Janet Mock, Jeching Wilson-Yang, Trish Salah, Morgan M. Page, Tori Peters, Gwen Banawe, Kai Cheng Tom. Like, there's this whole enormous, amazing long list right now, and it is amazing. Um, and there is a very simple and very easy answer about why I felt driven to make writing like this, um, which is that, you know, Certainly, I do feel there is a cultural and literary component to social change, which we have seen um, to some degree. Um, certainly, this is part of what has made me strong for advocate about advocating for my writing in certain ways and for the writing of other trans authors. But there is an even simpler answer that I always do not ever want. I always want to be very conscious to make sure it does not get lost, um, which is that I felt driven. I have been felt driven to make this work for the reason that any silly weird artistic human feels like they have to make work you know it's 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 funny i sometimes think that um that writers from marginalized community are often told their work is quote unquote important uh and maybe it is i don't really think that's for really for me to decide um but what i do know what i do know very 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 clearly is that if i sat down at my desk for a few hours um you know and thought like okay like okay, what am I going to do today that's going to be the best thing for trans people? Like, it would not have been trying to bang out this fucking novel. Like, <laughs> that is not what it would have been number one on the list, if that makes any any sense at all. Um, and so, and, um, you know, and this book is also about Mennonite history and heritage, which there is tons of books about, actually. Um, Mennonites love talking about themselves. Um, that's not necessarily new or important, or, you know, books about young queer people struggling with alcoholism. Certainly there are lots of books that talk about that. Um, but this whole, this whole story that is within here in this book, um, that dragged me down the road to finishing it, um, you know, it, what inspired me to do that and what followed me into finishing it, which is the same reason that any artist or any writer has ever made work, I think. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from my first book. This is from a. Um, this is from a story called Portland, Oregon. Um, what you need to know where I'm starting. So, 
This is, it is set in an unnamed, uh, very cold city in the middle of the continent. Um, and this woman, Adrian, uh, lives alone with her cat. Um, and she has a day job at a call center. Um, and to, and she's pretty broke. So to make some extra money, she has, um, she has just started um, um, driving for an escort agency. Adrian smelled cat urine when she woke up, but because her building was freezing, the smell was faint and diluted by icy air. They didn't call, she thought, as soon as she woke. She had been desperate for one of the girls to call. She wrapped herself in blankets and got up, shivered over to the window, and drew back the cloth she used for a curtain. Pale sunlight lit the room. She lived in a basement apartment, and the windows were small and near the ceiling. Snow's going to set in any day now, she thought. Then God, who knows how long it's going to be till I see out of here again. She heard a card chug start outside in the shh of an ice scraper on the windshield. She drew the curtain and checked the answering machine on her nightstand just to make sure she hadn't missed anything. Um, then she padded to the bathroom. There was a puddle of cat pee in the corner. She made a face, wiped it up, and scrubbed the floor. She washed the bathroom floor with Mr. Clean and then went to the kitchen. She split an English muffin and the cat nudged her leg and she sighed, la 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 la. It would kill for you for me to eat first, wouldn't it? She reached under the sink and dumped a yogurt cup of food in his dish and he gave her a scornful look and she mumbled, yeah, whatever. She was almost out of cat food too. Fuck, maybe, maybe, maybe tonight the agency would call. Later that night, she slipped back into the apartment around eight, when the woman had said they might call her again, and leaned her frame against the wall. She went to the kitchen to heat up soup, and soon she was back in her armchair. The cat wandered over and lolled on her feet. He leapt on the armchair and squished him beside her in the armrest. She stroked his head, and she said, So I was a bitch this morning. Slightly, he yawned. I suppose I deserved it. I did pee on the floor. And she said, Yeah, that was kind of gross. Were you drunk? He cleaned the back of his paw. Maybe you did leave the lid down. Oh my God, Glenn, please go in the bathtub. I will like that a lot more than you going on the floor. And he said, fine, I won't do it again. Okay, okay. She blew on her bowl. Uh, hey, it's, I know it's kind of cold in here. Like, are you going to be okay with the winter? Like, because I, I could like get like find like a space heater or something. Like I can try. And he said, not at all, Adrian. You see, I am a Norwegian forest. I know you're a Norwegian forest, dude. Well, I just need you to understand. I don't wither easily. She nodded. She ate her soup rapidly, and he fell asleep. She tried to crane her neck to look at the phone in her room. She really wished they would call. She gave Glenn a little kiss on the side. The black stripes on his fur grew and his body rose with his breathing. She tried to get up without disturbing him, but he woke up and he said, damn it. She laughed. That's always happened. Whatever, man. Like, you need more sleep. She put the kettle on. Do you want some tea? I have never had tea. You know, it warms you up better than... What, what do you like to drink? You like rye, right? You, you drink rye? I keep forgetting. I'm, I'm sorry. He came into the kitchen, left on the counter, and then the fridge, and said, yes. And actually, I will have some tea. I've never had tea. How do you grow up without ever drinking tea? Like, weren't your owners all snobby? My former humans drank scotch and hot chocolate. Well, and rye whiskey. But not, in fact, tea. My kind of family, she said. No, he said. Absolutely not. When the kettle went, she put a tea bag into a bowl and poured the water in. She was almost out of tea, too. She, she went to check her machine just in case. Nothing. Fuck. She sat, on a, she, sat, she sat on a chair in her room. Then she picked a pillow off the floor and hunched up with it on her knees. They told her what they'd pay for call, and she counted on making that much soon. But if they didn't call her in the next couple of days, Adrian, yelled Glenn, this is really hot. I can't drink it. She came back to the kitchen and blew on his bowl a bit. Here, she said. Thank you. He tentatively lapped it up. Hey. He laughed more and looked up. This is remarkably tasty. Is all tea like this? She grinned. Nope, there's thousands of different kinds, actually. This one is called English breakfast. English breakfast! Glenn clapped his nose in the bowl. Yes. Do the English really drink this for their breakfast? He continued lapping, and she drifted to the window where snow had just begun to fall. I don't know, Glenn, she said, staring up through the glass where she could almost make out the flakes hitting the ground. I really don't know. Fast forward a little bit, she's starting to get more work, and she is getting definitely no, no sleep, and she is forgetting to feed uh, Glenn a lot. What are those? Glenn asked one night. Adrian was cleaning out her bag in the living room, and had set a Ziploc baggie of pills on the coffee table. T3s. Hmm? I'm going to bed soon, she said. If they call again, they can find someone else. I have to go to sleep. 
It was around 4 a.m. and she'd just gotten home after leaving at 11. On the table she had also put books, condoms, stray cigarettes, some twenties, chapsticks, lighters, pennies, nail polish remover, pens, napkins, a small hand mirror, a notepad. She only returned to her bag the notepad, two pens, the condoms, the mirror, and the lighter. Glenn noticed that she was moving strangely, slowly. She still hadn't fed him that day. He sigh wheezed and said, could I have some food? And Adrian said, shit, shit, yeah, yeah, sorry. She moved up jerkily. She was so tired. She was so incredibly tired. She felt every part of her body clunking and straining. She moved to the kitchen in slow steps, bent in front of the cabinet to take out his food, dug in a yogurt cup, and instead of pouring it, placed it in the bowl. When he went over to look at it, only a third of the cup was filled. He turned around. She was closing her bag, leaving the extra things on the coffee table and heading into her room. Glenn, she said, come with me. Hmm? Come with me. He followed her to the bedroom, and she undressed, pulling her bra out from under her shirt, unbuttoning and dropping her jeans in one motion, putting one knee on her bed, then letting her weight fall on the whole thing. She put the blankets over herself. Then she picked him up and placed him on her chest, then leaned forward and scratched him under the chin. She said, Glenn, you're really... She closed her eyes like she was saying something difficult. I'm grateful you're in my life. Her head nodded down. She was so tired. It felt like a slow but firm hand was pushing her whole body deeper into her bed. She focused on getting words out and making them sound like words. But I am hurting you. Glenn blinked at her and said, oh, well, well, well I, I perhaps some, hmm? She leaned her head back onto her pillow gently and gradually, then sent her hand to rub her forehead. Her skin was so dry, the sound it made was rough and quiet, like a book moved along a, car like a, book moved along a carpet. I'll be better, she said. She laid her hands above her blanket on the side of her body, breathed in and out deeply, her head further and further in her pillow. He could see her gently sliding away, and she was feeling herself leaving, like the warmest, softest plastic wrap was going around her brain. She lifted her hands once more to stroke Glenn, it seemed to take forever. Then she said, could you, could you tell me something nice? Just tell me something nice that's happened to you. She felt each of her fingers sink into the blanket, then disengage from response. That's something you could do uh, that I'd really like. Glenn blinked at her. He didn't know how to reply, so he said, hmm, to stall, and blinked and waited for her to say more. But he was only thinking, I asked you. I asked you, and you didn't even give me a full cup. She didn't say more and went to sleep, and he turned around and went to eat. Glenn was right, though, that Adrian was less stressed. In some ways... Money wasn't as much of a worry, for one, and thanks to a few of the girls, she could always get someone to pick up for her. Adrian was grateful for those things, and those T3s were nice, but she was disconnecting, feeling more and more removed from the world, never unsleepy, awakened multiple times a night. She knew she was neglecting Glenn, that not only was he angry about the food, but he missed her being around, though, she thought, he always had booze now, and nice food, and it was always actually in the house. But at her day job, too, she felt the faces receding, speaking to her like water. She wasn't exactly un-okay with this. The work itself was boring and peaceful most of the time. Most of the time. Though she did hate the sleep thing. It was just that more she felt like she was watching herself drift farther and farther from the known world. She never turned down calls, except for that one night which the woman who ran the agency had not been happy about. She liked the girls better than the woman. Adrian knew they liked that she was so reliable. And not only was the money good, but, like, she felt some pride in that. So she went out, so she was out almost every night, and she would drive home in wee hours from bungalow suburbs and mid-grade hotels back into her part of the city. Sometimes it wasn't quite morning yet, so the streets would be quiet, but sometimes she'd be out late enough to see people on the dawn shift, straggling out of their buildings with parkas and coffees, zipping up their kids' snowsuits and waiting at bus stops. And when she watched them, it was like nothing had ever felt less real. She didn't feel sad, per se, when she saw them, just impossibly heavy, unmoored, like they were lives she was watching from far away and had been familiar with long ago. When she came in that night around 4.30, having taken the last of her T3s an hour before, she swayed and zagged to her bedroom, losing her hat and gloves and coat on the way to the floor, and not really hearing Glenn's mewing or yelling or noticing the vomit, shoveling food in his bowl, and only stooping to scratch him once before putting a knee on her bed and muttering, I fell asleep in my fucking car. Um, I promise the story ends, by the way, in a bit of a happier uh, place than where I left it. Um, so that, uh, that story is actually the oldest, uh, piece of fiction that I've ever written. Um, I published this book. I was very fortunate enough to publish this book just before I, I, I turned 27. Um, but I began to write that story when I was 19, about eight years before. Um, and it was seven and a half years before it went to the publisher in this finished form. Um, I, I was not working on that particular story for seven and a half years. Um, but I bring it up because 
you know, there, there was something about how those characters kept staying with me, even when I thought, like, oh, that was a thing I wrote when I was younger. Of course, I'll never publish it, you know? It's funny how long that story stayed with me um, through my early and mid-20s. And sometimes I would send it to, you know, various friends and all sorts of iterations. Um, and uh, at a while, it almost seemed like this thing that just, um, that, that was just for me and my friends. You know, at some point, it seemed like, of course, it would never be published or be public. It was not this, you know, it was just this thing that I wrote that was kind of helping me figure out how to write. And uh, it was a warm feeling, actually, thinking about it, you know, during those years. It was like something private, you know. Um, this prissy talking cat and her... Um, and her and her fucked up young human, um, and then after it got published, um, it was mostly received positively, and that was such a warm thing to witness. You know, it was it was kind of like getting um, to introduce an old friend to the world, and it turns out that the world likes them. You know, um, it was it, it it was very um, it was very touching, um, and which for me kind of like nicely uh, maybe relates to my current work because for me writing is so often about unearthing like the really fucked up, weird, unreal parts of life that I don't really have words for, you know, it's about building something intimate that I would scarcely let myself think about, and then eventually placing that story into public view and hoping that some people connect with it. And you know, what's funny too, is that that story that I read out of, it is the one story in the book which isn't explicitly explicitly about anything trans, um, yet I know a lot of um, both trans and cis readers really like this story. Um, and this reaction has sort of spoken to me about how you just kind of, you never really know how readers are going to take something. You know, you can guess and you can show your work around and you can do your damnedest to make, make the work better. But in a way, you know, this stuff doesn't really belong to me anymore. They belong to everybody but me to sort of have opinions or ideas about, um, about what they mean, which, um, which is very cool. Um, and that is kind of for me what it comes down to, which is that, you know, I sort of like write what I have. And what I mean when I say what I write what I have, I mean it's what I ever am obsessed with at the time or whatever is that I cannot let go of. You know, writing, um, I think like writing is way, way, way too fucking hard to try to fake what is inspiring you. Um, so, um, and that is all I want to say. Um, I think we have about like... 15, 20 minutes left? Yeah, we've got time minutes. for questions. Um, anybody has any? Um, that's hard being the first one. I can also read this entire book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd love doing that. I can read really fast. Athena. <laughs> that's good. It's all good. Uh, so, um, in the, the trans kind of like literature and reader community and marginalized appropriateness or inappropriateness or value of putting a lot of the trauma related with being a racialized or queer or otherized per otherized person into mm -hmm. the literature uh, literature for or of that group when there's kind of so little of it on display uh -huh. um, and I was curious what what your thoughts were on that question or of kind of like what to you the artistic utility of showing what you have shown in your work I mean, it's something that I think, yeah, that I think a lot about, especially because, like, I don't, you know, I, um, I've written some pretty heavy stuff that was difficult for me, I know, to write, and I, and I, um, sometimes feel ginger or weird about putting, also then, like, putting that stuff into the world, um, but, I mean, I feel like that is, I mean, a couple things there, I mean, I, I, um, I feel like stuff that I, as a reader, that have also gone to those places have helped me deal with things, or I, that I have connected with them, rather, in ways that nothing else has, so. Um, and I also just felt like I just kind of, like, had to write it, you know? I mean, I kind of, I always, um, I know there's that, there's that canard, like, write with the door closed and edit with the door open. Um, and so I think that um, that was what I felt like I had to be doing with the door closed. And when the door was open, there might have been points where it was like, you know what, maybe this is, maybe this is, we let this cook for another few years, or maybe we never really do anything with this, or you know what, like maybe this was good therapy for you, Casey, to kind of like work on your shit, but there's no real need to make anyone else experience that, you know? Um, and that was, um, but as I, you know, kept the door open, that was not, uh, that wasn't the feedback I got, and that wasn't what I was, was hearing from other people, so. Um, but I mean, it is it is something I think about a lot, you know. And I also, um, I as uh, on the on the, um, you know that um, have any of you heard about that Netflix movie Girl? It's like a yeah, it's like about like a yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's about like a what is she like a 
figure skater. It's been a while. Ballerina. What? Ballerina. Right, right, right. It's like about a trans girl ballerina, and I, it's just, what is it? Scene where she like self castrates herself, um, and um, eh, um, and um, anyway, and so I, um, I would just like think to myself, I'd just be in, like a silly jackass on Twitter and I was like excuse and I like tweeted about this because there was a thing written about it and someone was like I watched this it was awful like you here's why you should not do it I did it so you do not have to here's what this thing is about and I'm like oh man I don't I don't want to and it was like it was also played by a cis person it was written by cis people um and I was like yeah this doesn't sound like something I want to um you know it sounded like trauma porn um and I just made the joke. I was like, excuse me, like, where is, like, the funny, weird sitcom about, like, a straight and a gay trans girl live together and they, like, don't understand each other's love lives and, like, they just, like, have bad dates and they, like, you know, like, relate them to themselves at the end of the night and, like, you know, they have, like, they have, like, um, these two guys they live down the hall from and, like, they both have, like, a love-hate relationship with them and there's, like, a lesbian bar around the corner and they always get treated really weirdly there but they're all still friends somehow anyways. And I was just, like, joking and then I was like, actually, I think I actually want that show to exist. Like, I think I have convinced myself from this joke. Um, so I do, um, I don't, I, um, I want more of that work to exist in the world even though... And I would and I would say maybe that kind of seems weird because I have made so much of not that kind of work. Um, but maybe 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 it isn't weird actually. Maybe I'm like, you know, maybe it's like, oh, I made it. I I made some stuff that was heavy and I meant it and I am glad I did. But also like, someone would like to make something not like that. Like I will champion and cheer the shit out of it. Um, does this answer your question at all? Yeah. Okay. Yes, please. So I thought it was funny. And when you're reading from the novel, so much of the time the protagonist is saying, um, why do we have to talk about this? Why do we have to talk about this? Why do uh -huh. we have to talk about this? But everything you wrote, you read was dialogue, right? So, uh -huh. <laughs> so they, they are like, you know, um, uh, they, they are talking about it even as mm -hmm. she's saying, I don't want to talk about this. Yeah. So, um, how how do you how did you approach that initial scene with so many voices right out of the gates right we're just sort of thrown into a scene is it four characters four yeah and they're all sort of talking they're all in different levels of inebriation mm -hmm. and um, interrupting each other mm -hmm. and and yet it's followable did you did you work on that was it was it difficult to write such a sort of crowded loud talky scene or did it just kind of come out naturally or it, somewhere in between um it's funny you mentioned that scene because i um it actually came like last um like actually for the longest time what the first uh the scene that goes into when she um her dad calls her and tells her that her grandmother's dead that was what opened the novel for the, i would say right up until about a month before i handed the final thing in um and it was someone who made a suggestion to me was like i think there's something that comes before this um and then I, I like the idea of like kind of seeing the four of them, sort of how they kind of all hang together before the action of the book actually sort of starts. Um, and I wanted to talk about this this kind of like framing of like the trans relationship of time, blah blah blah. So, um, but on on a, on a craft level, what I think is that yeah, on I think that for me like um, I for the most part I try to shy away from like stylized dialogue where it doesn't really sound like people talking. Um, and I think that works for two people, but when you've got, like, four people all kind of, like, drunkenly interrupting each other, you kind of have to throw that out the window. Like, you kind of have to sacrifice verisimilitude, otherwise it, it would be unfollowable. Um, so I think that, like, then I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't follow my usual sort of, like, um, knowledge for doing dialogue, where I, where I do, when I do write two people talking, I really do try, to the best of my ability, to sort of, like, mimic what an actual conversation between two people sounds like. Um, whereas when it was four, I was just like, well, you know, I'm going to have to like figure out what I want this thread to look like and figure out what makes the most sense for who to be saying what and for, you know, sort of like almost like backwards engineer it, if that makes any sense. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah. 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 Do you think it helped because you wrote it last? Do you think it helped um, because by that point you really knew the character in a way that you 
almost yeah. never do when you first come to a store. Right, exactly. I knew the four of them so well by that point that it wasn't, that, that yeah, you know, I, I never thought about it that way, but like, hey, that worked out really well. Yeah, totally. Um, because it didn't, it didn't take me, I didn't agonize over it. It didn't, that one came out, I, I feel like I'm usually actually a pretty slow writer, but that one came out pretty, pretty, mm -hmm. fully, pretty fully formed. So the first story in this... <laughs> what are you working on now? I'm working on a book of short stories. Why the, do, you, do you have a preference between the short story and the novel form? Not really. I find they actually kind of both like spring from the same place. Mm -hmm. And just from the, the short stories that I've just kind of... like, There's been a point where I'm like, okay, like, this feels done. Like, I feel like I kind of know where this is headed, or I feel like this is, there's about... This is about, there's about five pages worth of this thing that I'm writing through. There's about like 15 or 35 or whatever. Um, and with the novel, that was like just the only thing I was like, actually, I feel like I might have a lot. Like, fuck, I guess I gotta write a novel. Like, that's, <laughs> will be hard. Um, but that, it, but it, it truly sort of like came organically that way. I never, I never set out to do that from the top down. There was just a point where I started writing, this thing, that's the novel, um, where I started writing it and then when I got as, I don't know, I was about like, 10, 20-ish pages in, I started to feel like, okay, like, I think, I think there's more than a novel's, I think there's a novel's worth of stuff here, like, I think that's it, so. Yeah, does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. So what was the process, um, of, how, how did you actually, uh, on the anthology, how did mm -hmm. you actually collect the work, how did you sort through, you had a partner, another, a co-editor? Oh, geez, yeah, me and Kat's. How did that happen? How did you work together? Yeah, and we still like each other, which is the amazing thing. Um, she, so she and I, let's see, how do we do this? Um, we set on a call in like, I think it was January 2015. Um, we gave a long time for submissions because we really wanted people to, if, if they felt moved, if this call made them felt moved to write something new, then to give them time to do that. And I think we closed it in December 1st. So we gave, so we gave 11 months. Um, and then, and we were floored. We also, um, we got, I think over 300 submissions, which we were not expecting, um, you know, for something as, I hate the word niche, but for something as so specific as uh, sci-fi or fantasy from trans writers, we were definitely not expecting over 300 submissions. Um, and then we, we read them all within a month and each of us read all of them, which, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which was, uh, I don't know why we forced ourselves to go so fast, but we did. Um, it was exciting. It was very, it was like a ram it through kind of situation. Um, and then we, um, we got together, we sat in a cafe for like half a day and we like, we narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down. Then we got down to 20 dates. Um, and then three of those people, and then we, um, and three of those people ended up dropping out through the editing process. Then we took about, how long did we take to edit this? I think we took most of a year. Um, I want to, no, it was nine months. So it was February 2016 to November 2016. So it took nine months to edit it all. We had a lot of back and forth because we really didn't want to, I don't know, I really didn't want to, I really hate it when I read anthologies and it just feels so kind of like, it often feels like slapdash or kind of like stuck together, you know, and it doesn't really, it feels sort of disjointed and like the quality sort of like, you can tell kind of ranges. We really, really, really wanted to be very, very careful with every single story and um, sort of curate it basically. Um, so we took nine months, we did that. Um, and then it entered production and came out about a year later. Does that, yeah. Does that answer your question? I love talking about like nerdy back end, book end, crap like that. So like, well, you worked as a publicist, right? Yeah, I did. And so, yeah. so can I ask about that as a writer? Yeah. Um, because writers are more and more asked to be their own publicists, mm -hmm. right? As mm -hmm. less and less money is sort of flowing. Yeah. Um, what what? What should we do? What are, what are some What are some tips and tricks? Oh, what, what do we do uh, when when we're you know if we're lucky enough to have a, a book published, uh -huh. um, and they're like, okay, well now you have to do such and such and such. Um, what do you do to promote your own work that is sort of uh, you? I mean, first of all, look, well, first of all, and this is what I would always tell authors too. When I when I worked for uh, the press is called W Oasis. I had no editing. They never published me. It was just like a dick job. Um, just, just I didn't have I wasn't involved in it the way I was involved in this. Right. Um, 
I would always tell authors that like never, I mean, first of all, anything that doesn't feel, um, never in, to never engage or indulge in like promotional or social media stuff that does not feel sort of like natural to you. Just because like, I think it's silly, especially when it comes, comes to artists, like you can always tell when someone's faking it, you know, like it is just not difficult. So something that does not necessarily feel like conducive to how you want to work with your writing or work with your book, then that's just like probably not something that's going to be successful. Um, and then, um, um, so that was a big one. Um, I don't know if I have any really sort of like magic or good, good ideas, um, you know, because I mean, there's 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 so much that's out of your control, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that this might, this might seem a little uh, silly, but I mean, it's a small world and everybody talks. So I think being sort of being a, be, not being, not being a jerk sounds so trite, but like you know, being like a decent, kind human who someone wants to work with. I mean, that's not to be. Machiavellian, Machiavellian about it, but I think that's like kind of always something that kind of ends up to um, do good things for you in that department. If you're, um, if you're that kind of person, and if you're a prima donna or you're kind of snitty, then that word will probably get around about that too, and you will stop being acid. You think? Um, um, yeah, I wish I had. I know. I know. I uh, authors would always ask me that question, and I wish I had. Uh, I wish I had better, better or um, more insightful answers, but I don't. No, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess to that point, excuse me. Um, so you wrote the, the, I forget the title, the book with the cat, um, much, much earlier, like when you were, when you were very young, or that you started it then, right? That story I started, yeah, when I was like 19. Yeah. And then um, were you a publisher or a publicist? after that or like during you know during that process that seven year period and then um and then you wrote the little fish much later more recently no it's i was a publicist far more re more recently so let's see i can i can i can totally do this timeline for you um yeah yeah so i um this a safe road to love the first book it came out in 2014 um pretty much after that i started writing little fish i wrote little fish between 2014 and 2017 um, and when I finished Little Fish, it was pretty much exactly when I got my job as a publicist. And I worked as a publicist from early 2017 to I just quit about two months ago. Okay, and now yeah. you're writing a series of short stories. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I also I finished a screenplay. Wish me luck. Thanks. I'll see how it goes anyway. I guess my question now is um, how, do you think that um, being a publicist has changed your approach to writing your like original content at this point? Like in terms, yeah, that's a really good question. In terms of the actual writing itself, like the actual act of sitting down and making stuff, no. Um, I it is in fact just kind of like reified that like what I feel like I know is working for me. I just kind of have to, I just kind of have to keep. I just kind of have to trust that and stick with it because it's so you know trying to sort of. And it, it, times when I would be a publicist, I'd be like, oh man, like this kind of stuff seems like it's doing really well, or like this kind of stuff seems like it's going bangbusters. Like, could I write a book like that? And you're like, oh, you know, like, and each time I'm just like, no, like, I, I, and I've, you know, I've seen people try, and I don't think I can. It has on kind of like a more um, minutia level, there are things like, for example, like the next time uh, if I write another book, um, when I'm invited to sort of give input on like the jacket copy, like I'll have my, you know, then I'll be like, oh, I know I want to say this, I want to write it this way, and don't print it that way because that's stupid. Like, and I'll kind of maybe have it also um, stuff about like the title or the cover because I know that those, I know how those things are affected. Um, but in terms of the actual like words on the page, um, uh, no, the only thing that being a publicist did was have given much less time to it. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because again, for like when I wrote the novel, it kind of started the same way that I would write short stories. There was just a point where I was like, okay, I think this is long. I think this is, I think this is a novel. Um, with the screenplay I wrote, that was also sort of felt like an anomaly. There was there was a story that I knew, but like right away I knew like the ideas I had right away. I knew this is a movie, not a book. And I can't tell you what like little angel kind of flew down on my shoulder and told me that, but it seemed very clear to me early on that I just like think had that um, vision of it. Um, and then, um, 
But as far as writing, starting to write fiction, period, I mean, I usually have either an idea or a thought or even just sort of like an image. In fact, actually, um, the, uh, the cat story literally just came because one day I could not stop thinking about this apartment that I had lived in with my father when I was very, very young. And I had no pictures of and like no one really else had been to and he didn't like talking about it. Um, and because it was and then like and I like it. So it started with like her in that apartment and it just kind of like branched out from there. Um, and that, that one's like has a, is a pretty clear cut memory. Um, I think a lot of the other ones, I think they started by similar processes, but I don't know if I can necessarily even remember. But it was definitely like either something someone said or an idea of a character or even again, just like an image or a place. Um, and I just sort of kept following those things and then she just kind of built it around them. Does that answer your question? Time for one more question. Fight. Oh, I was just gonna—I was gonna ask something goofy because that air makes me feel anxious. So. <laughs> yeah, I think we do. We have animals back there. Um, how do you feel about uh, Robin and Earth publishing your work in multiple bacterias and kind of um, trans history for lack of a better? or like kind of like it pulls in intellectual things and does that affect what you write or how you write at all or you know that's a really good question um it does um on one hand it does in the sense that I try to sort of be very um I kind of try to be mindful of the space I occupy and I try to um give opportunities to certain people when I don't feel like I'm the right fit for them and I try to sort of like use the um um, platform that I come with to sometimes to different ends. I, I'm always thinking about that. Um, but in terms of the actual like work I, work I'm writing, um, no, that actually kind of messes me up. I'll never forget actually when I wrote uh, the first, um, there was a story that was in here and it's the first piece of uh, short fiction I was ever going to publish. Um, and I, and it was about, um, and the piece heavily deals with sexual assault. This was about, I think about eight years ago? Eight years ago that I wrote it. Um, and I was so sure when I was done it, like I, like I remember finishing and sending it off being like, what have I done? Like everyone's gonna think I'm like, everyone's gonna hate this. Like everyone's gonna think I'm making trans women look like creepy or bad or awful. And just, I was so convinced that I had basically just like, you know, and my, there was a place in my mind where there was like a bunch of like really good people in a circle like doing things and I had like ran over and just sort of like tossed a stink bomb in there and like ran away kind of like, like I was very much fretting over this. I was so sure that I had done something horrible. Um, and then it actually came out and some people kind of said, you know, like that, like <coughs> something like that happened to me too. And I was like, and that, it, it, you know, it was, um, that was a very powerful experience. Um, and ever since then, I've kind of always felt like, you know, like I don't, it's not for me to decide again when it comes to fiction, you know, it's not um, where that work fits in the place. It is, um, you know, other people will get to decide where that is. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I can't, I, I, I honestly just like can't. Say what? I said that's helpful. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I can't credit that. You also had a question? Yeah, of all your writing, what character did you have most fun writing? Oh, man. Okay. Um, in this short, uh, in this in this one, there is the longest story that is something called Not Bleak, and there's a character named Carla who just fucking rules. Like, I would spend all day with her. I actually, like, she shows up again in Little Fish, both because I, like, enjoy kind of, like, having multiple characters, but I just, like, so enjoy hanging out with her on the page. Uh, yeah, she's a pants. <laughs> Thank you so much all for coming out here. And we do have um, all three books, the novel, the short story collection, and the anthology back there for sale. Um, and Adam will help you